Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you're joining with us here as we continue on in this series, really exploring the God's Holy Spirit, specifically from the perspective of the Old Testament. We started this series last week, and what we learned was really a lot. We learned how God's Spirit in the Old Testament, the word spirit in Hebrew is the word ruah but how ruah also means wind and it also means breath. And what we are also just really paying attention for is how does God's spirit move in the Old Testament so that we might become aware of how God's spirit is moving in our lives? Because here's what I believe, okay? I believe that God's spirit is active in your life. I believe that God's spirit is active in your life. The problem is for many of us is that if we don't understand God's spirit, if we don't understand God's ruah, then we'll actually live unaware of him. And so that's what we've really been exploring. So as I said last week, we really started off by trying to understand some Hebrew. And that ruah means both breath, wind, and also spirit. Jack Levison, who I referenced last week, says this, is ruah wind, spirit, breath? Yes. And perhaps something more than each. If translators lose the dynamic of the Hebrew word ruah, it may not be their fault. It may be due to a difference in languages, a discrepancy in words. The Hebrew ruah is richer and more resonant than the English words breath, spirit, or wind. English simply cannot shoulder the breadth of meaning that the original Hebrew and Aramaic languages of the Jewish scriptures can. And all of that is true. So that's why I'm going to continue to use that word ruah for God's spirit and to help us to expand kind of our mental shelf space for that word. And so today what I want to take a look at, really, is I want to take a look at how in the Old Testament there is a phrase that happens where we read that the Holy Spirit came upon someone. That's what I want to explore here today, how the Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament and then also how the Holy Spirit might come upon us here today. Last week, we looked at the Holy Spirit as breath and wind, right? Today, we want to take a look at the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And I want to give to you a few different instances of where we read this in the Old Testament. And then we're going to kind of dive right in and explore this and hopefully explain it. But most of all, most of all, ask the question, how might we also experience this in our modern day lives? So in Judges, we read this, we read this. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge. Here's another example of that phrase, came upon, and what we want to explore here today. In Samuel and Saul, we read this, where Samuel says to Saul, at that time, the spirit of the Lord will powerfully come upon you and you will prophesy with them and you'll be changed into a different person. Or with David, we read this. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And there are other examples of this phrase as well in the Old Testament, but this is what we want to explore here today. And so to do that, I want to turn to, as I said last week, a bit of a strange story today, one that you may not be terribly familiar with, But it's the very first story where we read of this phrase that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon someone. And so for that, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers 24. We're going to read about a talking donkey and flaming swords and some stories that might seem a bit strange and bizarre to us. So before we jump into this, though, I do want to set up the context in which we are currently living and why for some of us, even if as I read this story, you might feel some like doubt or disbelief or whatever it is. Because here's what we are formed to live in our day and age. We are formed to live in what is currently called a secular age. And what I mean by that is actually something quite specific. That when I say that we live in a secular age, how we are formed to believe, often without us even thinking about it, we are formed to believe that what is true and real is the stuff that we can see, touch, and empirically verify. 
This is how our world is forming us to believe, that the things that we believe are really real, are true things, are things that we can see, touch, or empirically verify. Or to put it a little bit differently, when I say we live in a secular world, I mean this very specifically, that we live in a world where the default setting now is for anyone who is Western and modern, okay? Anyone who is Western and modern, the default setting is now to doubt or disbelieve anything supernatural or miraculous. This is what it means to live in a secular world, that the default setting for now all of us, if you grow up in North America, is actually to doubt or disbelieve in anything supernatural or miraculous, which means it's hard to believe in God, miracles, and the supernatural in all day and age in our world. This is how we are formed to believe and to form to live, often without us even realizing it, that we take preference for things that are right in front of us rather than spiritual or miraculous or supernatural things. That what seems really real to us is the things we can touch and feel. This is why, to give you an example, this is why even if you're a Christian, this is why if your car breaks down, if your car breaks down, you likely call a mechanic, not pray over your car, because to us, the mechanic is more real, is more actual than prayer. This is how we are formed to believe. Our world tends to discount anything that it can't explain. But what you know and what I know from living in this world is that there are lots within our lives that are actually unexplainable. Things that are miraculous or amazing or mysterious or strange. And so I bring all of this up. I bring all this up because as we enter into this next story, what I want to invite you to do, what I want to invite you to do is to set aside some of your assumptions and preconceptions. What I actually want to invite you to do is to set aside some of your biases and prejudices. Because we as a culture actually have prejudice to ancient cultures. We already decided ahead of time that we know better than them, that our world doesn't work that way or whatever it is. So I want to invite you to set some of this stuff aside and to just enter into this amazing biblical true story and to hear it and to actually enter into it and to learn some of the truth from it, okay? So I want to invite you to set some of those things aside and just enter into the worldview of the ancients so that we might actually learn and grow and hopefully even experience the Holy Spirit coming upon us. So I want to read to you the story and then we're going to kind of work through it, okay? This story is set up in the time when the Israelites are really moving to the promised land and there's lots of different cultures around the Israelites, and they are fearful of the Israelites often. And so that's what we read of. Um, they're kind of going through this territory, and there's a king of Moab who is fearful of the Israelites. So what the king does is he tries to hire a seer, like a prophet or a shaman kind of type figure, actually to curse the Israelites. This is his plan, that he's going to hire this shaman or seer or prophet to curse the Israelites so that, so that they will be victorious against them. And so we read this. So Balak, king of Moab, sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor, who was living in the native land of Pethorah near the Euphrates River. His message said, look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me because they are too powerful to me. Then perhaps I'll be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. He says, I know that blessings fall on any people you bless and curses fall on any people you curse. And so the king hires Balaam to actually curse the Israelites. But Balaam is reluctant, actually. He's here, God, tell him not to go, but he ends up going anyway. And here's what ends up happening in the story. So it says this. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. He's going to go seek to curse the Israelites. But God was angry that Balaam was going. So he sent an angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. As Balaam and the two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. 
Then the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed uh, in between two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by. This time when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. And in a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. You have made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. But I am the same donkey you have ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell down before the ground before him. Why did you beat your donkey those three times, the angel of the Lord demanded. Look, I've come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I certainly would have killed you by now and spared the donkey. Now, you may not be laughing from the reading of this story, but ancient day people would be laughing. This story is incredibly comical. That's the point of it, right? So what we see here is a paid prophet, a paid seer, the person who's supposed to be really, really in touch with like the spirit world, being unable to see an angel, and we have like a donkey, someone who's not supposed to be in touch with the spiritual world, able to see the angel. What it's really showing here is that Balaam is unable to really truly see things as they are. The contrast is that Balaam is supposed to be able to see the spirit, but can't, and the donkey who shouldn't be able to see the spirit can. And then notice with me, notice with me, once the donkey starts speaking to Balaam, once the donkey starts speaking to Balaam, the text never mentions that Balaam is surprised or shocked by this, right? Balaam has a normal conversation with the donkey. And in many ways, this kind of shocks us because you think the text would be like, Balaam was astonished at the donkey speaking or whatever, but it isn't. Because in Balaam's day and age, in an ancient day worldview, this actually was in some ways normal. And I want to explain what I mean by that. It is not normal to have donkeys speak. Obviously, that is miraculous and that really, like very rarely um, kind of happens, right? Like that's kind of a miraculous thing. Um, but what was normal in Balaam's day and age was the expectation that there's always more than you can see happening. So when there is all of a sudden this moment of amazing, miraculous kind of experience with a donkey and an angel, right? Balaam isn't shocked by this because Balaam lives with the understanding that there is always more than you can see. We, as modern day people, live in the opposite way. We always assume there's less going on, right? That there's nothing more happening. But the ancients lived with this idea that there was like a surplus of meaning and amazing things happening all around them all the time. So Balaam has this encounter with the angel, but yet he continues on. He continues on and he goes to go and curse the Israelites. But what ends up happening, what ends up happening is he actually ends up blessing them. Let's uh, pick up the story in chapter 23. Then Balaam said to King Balak, build me seven altars here and prepare seven young bulls and seven rams for me to sacrifice. Balak followed the instructions and uh, the two of them sacrificed a young bull and ram on each altar. This is in chapter 23. And these altars were used for divination. What I mean by that is they would sacrifice an animal, and then according to the patterns in the animal or the patterns in the smoke, they would make, you know, prophecies on the future. That is what would happen. But then this strange thing happens. Balaam goes to curse the Israelites, and instead he blesses them instead. The king Balak is furious. Then the king Balak demanded of Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies. Instead, you have blessed them. And this pattern of Balaam seeking to curse the Israelites, but instead blessing them, happens again. And then in the third time, in verse 27, we read this. Then King Balak said to Balaam, come, I will take you to one more place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them from there. 
So Balak took Balaam to the top of Mount Peor, overlooking the wasteland. Balaam again told Balak, build me seven altars and prepare seven young bulls and seven rams for me to sacrifice. So Balak did as Balaam ordered and offered a young bull and a ram on each altar. And then the very next verses is the ones I really want to pay attention to here today. Let me see this. By now, we read this. This is the very next verse in the very next chapter. By now, Balaam realized that the Lord was determined to bless Israel. So he did not resort to divination as before. Before, he was the one trying to be in control. He would set up altars. He would seek to do it, all of his rituals and protocols and procedures. But this time, he kind of gives up on that. So he did not resort to divination as before. Instead, he turned and looked out towards the wilderness. And when he saw the people of Israel camped tribe by tribe, uh, this is what it says. Then the spirit of God came upon him. That is the very first time this phrase is used in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. Then the Spirit of God came upon him. And this is the message he delivered. This is the message of Balaam, son of Beor, the message of the man whose eyes see clearly, right? He now sees clearly because God is upon him, right? Before, he did not see clearly. Remember, he couldn't even see the angel that a donkey could see. Now he's finally seeing clearly because the God's Spirit has come upon him. Because the Ruah of God has come upon him. And he says this, this is the message of the one who hears the words of God and who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. This is talking about a drastic change in Balaam from before. That before he couldn't even see the spiritual realm of an angel standing there that a donkey could. Now his eyes are wide open. He says this, how beautiful are your tents, O Jacob. How lovely are your homes, O Israel. And he gives a long blessing to Israel. And he gives a long blessing to Israel. Okay. So this is a story I do want to explore here today. I want to really look at three things in the story that can help us to understand this phrase of the Holy Spirit or the Ruah of God, the Ruah of the Lord coming upon Balaam. Because this is actually the very first time we hear of this phrase being used, as I said, in the Old Testament. So I want to notice three things from this text, okay? And the first thing I want to point out from this text is really kind of like two things. That the Spirit of God cannot be manipulated, only surrendered and submitted to, okay? I want to say that again. That the Spirit of God, the Ruah of God, cannot be manipulated, only surrendered and submitted to. That that's what we see in this story, and what the story highlights really is how in control God is, right? Is how above all of us God is. Balaam, Balaam is the one who tries to curse Israel, but God doesn't allow it. Balaam is the one who says, I'm going to go this way with the donkey, but God doesn't allow it. Balaam is the one who thinks he's in charge, but by the end of the story, what he realizes is that God is truly in charge. And so what we see in this passage, really, is that God cannot be controlled, manipulated, or forced, or coerced. Instead, the only thing that we can do when it comes to the Spirit of God is we can submit and surrender to Him. And I think this is really important, that we cannot actually be forcing the Spirit to do what we want. And so we submit to His will and His working. And we see this really clearly in the text. And when we read this, by now, Balaam realized that the Lord was determined to bless Israel, so he did not resort to divination as before. He doesn't resort to his normal protocols, magical you know, procedures and rituals. He is actually saying, I'm no longer going to be the one in control and actually moving this forward. Instead, it says, he turned and he looked out towards the wilderness where he saw the people of God camped. Then the Spirit of God came strongly upon him. 
So here what we see is that Balaam doesn't go to his regular routines and rituals. He actually just submits. That's what happens. He actually just submits. And that it says that the Holy Spirit came upon him only after he surrenders, yields, and gives up control. Okay? So this is really important, I think, for us to understand this phrase of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. That this only happens when we actually surrender and yield to the Spirit. That we can't force this to happen. We can't manipulate this to happen. We can't make these moments happen. We can just submit when God wills to come upon someone. That is all that we can do. I think this is important for us to actually realize and to recognize. Because even today, pastors, preachers, teachers, Christians of all kinds, they often have set up different ways that if we follow this kind of ritual procedure, these prayers, pray this you know, prayer or do this song or whatever it is, that then we expect God to show up as if we're the ones in control. But what this story shows is that God is the one that's in control. And if we wish to have the Holy Spirit come upon us, the only thing we can do is to submit and surrender to him. So the first thing I want to share with you from this story that I think really, really matters is that we cannot manipulate the spirit or the Ruah of God. We can, though, surrender and submit to him. Okay? The second thing, the second thing I want to notice is that when the spirit does come upon someone, it comes upon someone for a purpose and a reason and an activity. Okay? I want to say that again. That when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, when the Ruah of God comes upon someone, it comes upon someone for a purpose, a reason, and an activity. That when the Spirit comes upon Balaam, it actually then enables him to see clearly, whereas before, he clearly couldn't. Right? It enables him to give a true prophecy. It enables him to actually see how the world is meant to be running. That's what's happening in this moment. That the Spirit comes upon Balaam to accomplish a purpose of God. Okay? That the Spirit comes upon Balaam to accomplish a purpose of God. Jack Levison puts it this way, that the Spirit simply allows Balaam to see reality as it is, rather than as he has erroneously perceived it. When the Spirit inspires in Balaam is not a framework for the future, an unprecedented prediction, a sensational glimpse of the world to come, but a clarity about the reality as God sees it. Such clarity, uh, such a course correction is the quintessential work of the Spirit. Such clarity is the essence of prophecy. So the Spirit comes upon Balaam, and then he can see truly to be able to deliver appropriately the right prophecy and oracle and blessing on Israel. So we see in this passage is really when the Spirit comes upon someone, it's for a purpose, it's for a work, it's for an activity. We also see this in other passages in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, where the Spirit comes upon someone to accomplish something. Right? Even the passage I read to you earlier in Samuel, uh, when Samuel says this in First uh, uh, Samuel to Saul, says this, at that time, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them. You'll be changed into a different person. That the Holy Spirit comes upon us to empower us to act in different ways, to become different than we were. That's what part of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone is about. So the first thing I want to notice is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, this is a moment that we cannot control or manipulate. We can just surrender to the Ruah of God. Secondly, when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, it's actually for a purpose, for a reason, for an activity. It alters and shifts something. The third thing I want to notice from the story is incredibly obvious, but something we, I think, generally never talk about in church, but this is incredibly obvious, okay, is that the Spirit coming upon people, follow with me, the Spirit coming upon people is not and never limited to the people of God. The Spirit coming upon people is not and never limited to just happening to the people of God. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we like to have this idea that the Holy Spirit only works within Christians or only works within our people or whatever it is. 
that really what we like to do is we like to control where God works. This is simply untrue. And what we notice here in the passage, follow with me, is that the very first person, the very first person that God is said to actually come upon, that the spirit of the Lord or the Ruah of God that comes upon is not an Israelite, is not a Christian, is actually not an insider, but an outsider. The very first person that the Bible mentions that the spirit comes upon is this like paid fortune teller, right? Balaam, right? This seer, this shaman of sorts, this prophet, somebody who is actually not a part of the people of God. He is not an Israelite, right? And so I think this just really matters for us, that when it comes to our expectations around the spirit moving upon people, we cannot just limit it to the people that we know and trust and that are part of the people of God, that the Holy Spirit actually will do what he wants. The Holy Spirit will do what he wills, that God is actually beyond our control. And I think that is wrong then, to ever narrow and limit the work of the Spirit to what we control and what we are comfortable with. Okay? I think it's wrong then for us to ever narrow and limit the work of the Spirit to what we control, what we are comfortable with. Because what this story shows in really obvious terms is that the very first person that the Spirit comes upon is someone we wouldn't expect. Right? The very first person that the Spirit comes upon is someone that we wouldn't expect. So what do we learn here from the story about the Holy Spirit coming upon someone, about the Ruah of God coming upon someone? we learn, I think, really three things. There's lots more, obviously, that's packed into this story. That first, the spirit, the Ruah of God, cannot be controlled or coerced by us. All we can do is submit and surrender to him. That Balaam never would have experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon him unless he had actually surrendered, right? It's when he gives up of his routines, of his magic, of his divination, that then he experiences the Ruah of God. The second thing we see is that the Ruah of God actually comes upon us for a purpose. It enables Balaam to be able to see truly and correctly. And then the third thing is, is that we learn is that uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon people is not just limited to the people of God that we would expect, actually. Because really, this story kind of breaks all of those expectations. So then what does this mean for us here today? Well, it's kind of my main point. My main point is a simple one. It's just this, that the Holy Spirit, the Ruah of God, can come upon you and empower you to act, but you have to be open to him. Okay? I want to say that again that the Ruah or the Spirit of God can come upon you and empower you to act, but you actually have to be open to him. That's my main point today, that the Spirit can come upon you and empower you to act, but you actually have to be open to you. And what I want to share with you is that we live in a world that is so much more amazing and miraculous than our modern Western world ever really acknowledges. That the Holy Spirit can come upon you just as the Holy Spirit came upon Balaam to actually enable you and empower you to act in amazing ways. That we believe that the same God that was acting in the Old Testament is still acting today. And that if we would open ourselves up to the Spirit, then the Spirit can come upon us to change us and to actually enable us to actually join in with what God is doing in the world. I want to remind you, that this idea, though, of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, that it can only happen when we surrender and submit to him. That Balaam only has the experience of coming upon him when he gives up his formulas, when he gives up his control, and he surrenders. So what's my main point? It's really simple. That today, you can actually have the Holy Spirit come upon you and empower you, but you have to be open to him. That just as how God moved with like Gideon, um, with Saul, with David, and also here with Balaam, God can also work in your life and he can also work in mine. But what does this mean then for us here practically? Well, as I shared with you last week, each week I'm going to share with you a story in my own life that I hope kind of illustrates what the Bible is talking about, but in modern day terms. So I want to share with you an experience that I've had where I really believe that it was that the Holy Spirit came upon me and empowered me to act in a very specific situation. 
I want to be upfront with this in case this might trigger you. I'm going to share a story of where I actually ended up intervening in an area of domestic violence and uh, family violence. Um, and so this is a story I actually shared two years ago or three years ago in 2019, but it's one that I believe actually bears repeating because for me, it's a moment when I look back on it, when I actually recall it and remember it, I really do believe that it was this moment where God's spirit came upon me to enable me to act in a really different way. So I want to share with you this story again. And it's um, about a camping experience that I had in 2018 uh, with us as a family. So in 2018, Chris and I were camping as we usually do, normally do most years. We go up to Kilbear Provincial Park. And so we are camping there. And then obviously there's lots of different campsites kind of around you, right? And there was one campsite kind of across the road from us where there seemed to be kind of like two groups that were together. There was like a mom and kids and a dad and kids. And the mom and dad um, seemed to be dating in some sort of way. But they also seemed to fight the entire time. They were constantly fighting and arguing and just being angry with one another. Uh, the gentleman also was consistently drinking fairly heavily. And so this was at night. It was maybe about, you know, seven or eight um, at night. Uh, we had just finished our kind of like campfire with the kids. And we we're going to put them to bed. And the arguing starts up between this couple. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And it gets to the point where I say to Krista, like, I'm not sure. Should I go over and check out things and try to, I don't know, diffuse this or whatever? But I didn't really know what to do because it was a little bit awkward. Right? Like, I don't want to be that nosy neighbor, yet on the other hand, they're clearly arguing and fighting. I just wasn't sure what the right thing to kind of do was, if you know what I mean. If you've ever been in one of those situations where you're just not sure, should I step in, should I not? That's kind of what we were debating. So I said to Krista, because it seems to be escalating, I said to her, you know what, I think I'm just going to go over and just check out things to make sure things are okay. And then as I stood up, what I saw was this woman and her kids run into the van that they had and to lock the doors. And then I saw this man, this gentleman, start to try to break down the window of the van to be able to get at this lady. She starts hammering on the horn. And obviously then, obviously then, like, I run over and I, want, and I intervene. I want to share with you some of the just context of this story and what happened next. Because what I really do believe what happened next was the Holy Spirit coming upon me in a way that actually empowered me to act. But I want to set up the context so you both understand, like, me and what I was like at that moment and also the gentleman that I would actually end up interacting with. And this is kind of comical on this end, looking back on it. But in the moment, um, there's a lot of like, it was pretty, pretty, pretty scary what was going on. So I run over, and just so you're appropriately picturing this, I run over and I'm wearing, I'm not making this up, I'm wearing a muscle shirt, right? Which shows that clearly I have no muscles, right? And on the shirt, what it says is, I like books, not people. That's the muscle shirt that I'm wearing, okay? And I'm wearing a backwards hat, and I run over, and I know like, I know if you ever describe me to your friends, right? If you ever describe your pastor, the first word that you would describe me with, I don't think it's going to be tough, okay? I don't think everyone thinks like, oh, look at that guy. He's super tough. Or I bet you he could win in a fight versus people, right? I don't look very tough and strong or whatever else. So I'm dressed like this, and that's where I'm at. The guy that I'm interacting with, the guy that I'm interacting with, you know, to give you kind of a, a picture of him, he is like jacked. He is ripped. He is somebody who is uh, on steroids, as we later learned actually throughout the course of this evening. And uh, he has kind of like a shaved head. He has those tribal tattoos and barbed wire tattoos on all of his biceps, you know, all over the place. And he's just somebody who is just fuming and angry. And so I run over, I run over, and this is what happens. I stand there in between him and the van. And he starts to get super aggressive with me. And he starts to think, say things to me like, who, do you think you're tough? Which nobody has ever thought about me ever. But he starts yelling at me. He starts threatening me. He starts taking out objects and threatening to hurt me with them. And it gets really, really, really serious, really, really quick. So I just continue to say to him, though, I just continue to say to him, though, um, I'm not leaving, so you need to leave. And in that moment, in that moment, I got to tell you, like something did come over me. 
Because when I was interacting with this individual and he's like right up on my face, he's like, you know, spitting at me. He's threatening me with everything that he can possibly threaten me with, that he's going to do to me and my family and whatever else. It's very serious. I got to tell you, in that moment, though, there was this strange sense of calm and conviction that no matter what this man does, I'm not leaving the situation and I'm not leaving the front door of this van. I'm just going to stand there until this man leaves. So I just continue to say to him, let's continue to say to him, you need to leave because I'm not leaving. He gets in his car, he would go away for two minutes, come back, get out, take objects out, threaten me, threaten violence. And I would say again to him, hey, you need to leave because I'm not leaving. Finally, of course, he does leave um, and he kind of leaves the situation. And eventually uh, police, police come as well. Obviously, because we're at Kilbear, it's pretty far away from the nearest center. And we're actually like probably like 20 minutes like drive into the campsite, whatever else. So police did respond. Um, friends of ours, actually, who were at the other end of the campsite, at the front, they saw police cars driving through, and they texted our group chat, and they said, we have a bet right now that Andrew is somehow involved. And Chris obviously like texts back. She's like, yep, he's giving a statement now, right? Because these things kind of end up finding me. So here's kind of what ends up happening with this situation at the end of it, okay? And I'll share with you the very end and why I share this with you today. All right, so what ends up happening is, obviously, I give my statement and all of that. We help the lady pack up everything. Actually, all the people in the campsites around, we all uh, collected money so that she would be able to go and have a safe night at a hotel so she wouldn't have to worry about this in individual finding him while the police were uh, seeking to apprehend him and all of that sort of stuff was going on. Krista obviously had lots of different conversations with the campsites around us as this is a really public incident, right? Like you're out in the middle of the public, what's going on? Uh, a retired police officer who was next to us came up to Krista and said, wow, your husband must be like a police officer for how he de-escalated de that. She turned to me and said, like, no, he's a pastor. He's like, well, well, that makes sense. So obviously all these things kind of end up happening and we kind of wrap up the evening. I want to share with you how I felt at the end of the evening. So I felt at the end of the evening, I went to go sit down by our campfire. It's probably like 11 o'clock now by the time all that has kind of gone on has happened. And I finally sit down. And I got to tell you, when I sit down around that campfire, I am like shaking. I'm like shaking with like fear and anxiety and worry. Like I just can't get it out of my system. I am just unable to calm down. I am just like kind of like fried. That's what's going on. I tell you this. I tell you this, because in that moment around that campfire, when it was all over, I did not in any way feel like a strong, calm, convicted individual. I felt just like absolutely terrified. That night, that night, because I was so scared of what might happen, I actually slept with like bear mace next to my pillow because of how scared I was. But I want to share that with you so you can see the contrast between me in the moment of that actual conflict and me afterwards that there's a big difference between how I reacted. In the moment, I was reacting with like strength and calm and conviction. Afterwards, I was completely terrified. And the difference between those two moments, what I wanna share with you, the difference between those two moments, I really do believe, is that the Holy Spirit came upon me and gave me strength and conviction that I didn't have normally. Because I really do believe that just as the Holy Spirit came upon Balaam and came upon Gideon and came upon Saul and David and other people in the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit can actually come upon you as well. And he can empower you to act. He can empower you to actually do things in line with his purpose in his will that he would have us do. I'm telling you the difference between me getting up and running over and standing there and sitting around the campfire where I was just so terrified. The difference was, I really truly do believe, the Holy Spirit coming upon me to empower me to act in that moment. Because I do believe that the same God who actually came upon Balaam in the Old Testament can still come upon us today. So what does this mean for us then practically? What does this mean for us then like today? What does it mean for you and for me? Well, here is both the unfortunate news and the good news, okay? The unfortunate news is that you cannot force these moments to happen. You can't. You can't. You are not in control of them. 
Right? You cannot manipulate God to give you his spirit so that you might be able to act. You cannot do that. There isn't like a three-step formula to being you know, filled with the spirit or having the Holy Spirit come upon you in a new way that actually empowers you to act. There's no like three steps I can give to you. Remember how Balaam had to surrender before it happened, right? This is something that you have to do. You have to surrender. You can't actually force it to happen. So the first thing I want to share with you that's kind of unfortunate news is that you cannot force or manipulate these moments to happen. But what I do believe you can do practically is this. I do believe you can do practically is this. You can start to submit to the spirit now so that he might come upon you when needed. Let me say that again. That you can start to prepare and submit to the spirit now so that he might come upon you when needed. Because I think that is something that we can practically start to do here today. So I believe that while we can't force the spirit to come upon us, we can pray and prepare for the spirit to come upon us. You can start to seek to submit to him now, to invite him to rule in your life now, to live in line with him now. I wish, as I said, I could promise you three simple steps that you can have the same experience of Balaam or of Gideon or of Saul or even that I had at Kilbear, but that would be lying and pretending I'm in control of God when I'm not. But that doesn't mean, follow with me, that doesn't mean that we need to be passive. We can actually get active in seeking to surrender and submit and to be filled with the Spirit now so he might come upon us when needed. So today, what is my main point? My main point is really, really simple, that the Spirit can come upon you and empower you to act, but you have to be open to him. I want to challenge you and invite you. If you ever want to have an experience like that I did, that I can even testify to, we have to start to seek to live in line with the Spirit now, here, and today. Because what I know from that night at Kilbear is that my response would have been so different, my response would have been so different if I'd been closed to the power and the working of the Spirit. I might not have gotten up and ran over right away. I might not have had the strength and conviction to stand there as I was. I might not have had you know, the ability to be calm. Instead, I might have had fear speak more to me, right? So I wanna share with you, I wanna share with you is the importance of us learning to submit and surrender to the Spirit now and today. Because I do believe that the Holy Spirit can come upon us and that will happen when he wills it, when he wants it, when he controls and directs that moment to happen. But we do have a part to play and that's to be open to him. So this week, what I wanna challenge you with, this week I wanna challenge you with is to start to live in line with the Spirit, to start to surrender to the Spirit, to start to submit to the Spirit, to pay attention for the Spirit. And specifically, specifically, how can you do that? Well, there's lots of things you can do through prayer, through, you know, engaging in worship, through using those breath prayers of last week. But today, what I want to invite you to do is something very, very specific. I want to invite you to pray every day to the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you. I want to invite you to pray every day to the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you so that you might be open to him in the moments where you might need to be empowered by him or he might come strongly upon you to accomplish some sort of action or ability or purpose. I want to invite you to pray every day for the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you, okay? And practically, practically, I want to actually invite you to pray a specific prayer. It's a prayer that is decades old. It's a prayer that's been prayed many times. It's also a prayer that isn't magic. This isn't going to instantly just force this stuff to happen. What it is is a prayer that focuses us on submitting to the Holy Spirit. And the prayer goes like this, okay? It says this, Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, Kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created. This is a prayer I want to invite you to pray every single day this week. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created. 
Because I really do believe that the Holy Spirit still can come upon us strongly and powerfully. And while we can't control that moment, we don't need to be passive, as I said. Our action, our action is to take a step to start to submit and surrender to the Spirit today. To start to submit and surrender to the Spirit today. So I want to invite you to pray that prayer every single day. To allow that prayer to start to shape you and inform you so that when there is a moment where you really do need the Holy Spirit to come upon you strongly, you might be open to him to receive from him what he has for you. And so with that today, with that today, I want to pray for you. Would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I pray. I pray in whatever space or situation we might find ourselves. I pray, Lord, will we start in this moment to more deeply surrender and submit to you than ever before. I pray, God, would you continue to fill us? Would you send your spirit forth? Would you actually fill our hearts with you and your presence and who you are? And I pray, God, would we be totally open to you so that in those moments where we might need you to truly fully come upon us in a new and a strong way, that we would be open to you, that we would be ready to receive from you, that we would be ready to surrender and submit to you. I pray this week, God, I pray this week, will we have a real, deep, intense, actual experience with your spirit, with you leading, with you guiding, and you moving through us. And might we be faithful and responding to you. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.